Hey, what's shaking, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. Today, I'm sitting with Steve Sinclair. He is the SVP of Product and Marketing at Mojo Vision. This is a great conversation just about category creation, not overselling yourself, but also pushing limits, marrying product and marketing under one roof, and how to communicate and make sure that your company stays ethical when you're pushing the boundary. Mojo Vision, this company, they are creating augmented reality contact lenses. You hear more about it in the show, but it's absolutely fascinating and one of the most innovative products that we've had or discussed on the show. So I think y'all will enjoy that. But before we get into it, as always, we put on this show here at Cave. Guys, we're a agency based out of Los Angeles that helps companies tell their story and we do it primarily through social media. So if you need some help, head over to cavesocial.com. We would love to help you out. All right, sit back, relax, enjoy. Ooh, what's going on, my marketing people? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. Today, joining me is Steve Sinclair. He is the SVP of Product and Marketing at Mojo Vision. Steve, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jordan. I'm excited to have you on and talk about a bunch of stuff. I know we got into uh, a little bit offline about what you guys are doing with Mojo Vision and then some of the challenges and what you have to do there. But I'm really, really interested to first hear your story and how did you find your way into this crazy world of marketing? You know, like a lot of people that I've heard on your podcast um, talk about it, it wasn't a direct line, obviously. I started off as an engineer and got an industrial engineering degree from Berkeley and thought that that's what I wanted to do. And I worked as an industrial engineer for a couple of years and then realized I wasn't really that good at it. And so I uh, went back to school and got my MBA from Michigan, focused on operations and strategy and worked for a few years as a quality systems manager. I was doing project management at a semiconductor company and I enjoyed Enjoyed that, but that wasn't really it for me. I switched over and I was an IT manager for a couple of years designing data warehouses and that was fun, but again, not for me. And then I got the opportunity to jump over to a startup called Handspring and Handspring for the older listeners in the crowd was building Palm OS PDAs which eventually became smartphones, the first smartphones, like the Trio smartphone. And I worked my way within that small company through a number of different roles in manufacturing and IT, eventually landed in the product management group and became a product manager for software, for email software, and was basically defining how you know, people were going to use these newfangled smartphones in the early 2000s to communicate with each other. And that eventually turned into a hardware product management role. And I was working on definition of smartphones for hardware. And then I got a call from Apple and they were just about ready to release a new product called the iPhone in 2007. And they were looking for a product manager for that. And so I jumped over to Apple and was part of that revolution with the iPhone. I started off doing both product management and product marketing for iOS in the early generations of the software that became iOS and worked on features like FaceTime and Siri and uh, iMessage. And then eventually shifted again over into hardware and began working on release of different hardware products. So I worked on, at Apple for about six years through definition of iPhone 6 and got a great experience on how to be both a product manager and a product marketer for a product. And I thought that that was just invaluable experience. I then left there and I went to Motorola. 
Google, which was part of Google at the time. And I became VP of product marketing. And I was responsible for shipment of a number of Android phones and Android smartwatches and other accessories from there. And then uh, got great experience from an Android ecosystem perspective and understanding the challenges of that ecosystem vis-a-vis the iOS ecosystem. And then uh, Lenovo bought Motorola, and I decided to switch gears and get some GM experience. So I went over to HP and I ran the commercial notebook business for a couple of years while I was there. And that was both a combined product management, product marketing role, um, and shipped a bunch of great commercial enterprise grade laptops. Uh, But that didn't really work for me either, being in the enterprise world. And so I eventually wanted to make the switch back to consumer. And that's when I discovered a little startup called Mojo Vision. It wasn't called that at the time. It was in stealth. Um, this was about five years ago. And there were less than 20 people there. It was a bunch of PhDs and other you know, high-powered engineers that thought that they could reinvent the way that we consume information. And they were basically, they had the aud- audacious idea to create the world's first smart contact lens. Basically, to put augmented reality into a contact lens and be able to display that information in your eye. And they were looking for a product person who could lead that. And of course, I jumped at the opportunity to get in on the ground floor. The company was very young and didn't have a really strong sense of what they wanted the product to be or what they wanted to do. They just were working on the tech to make it possible. And so it just was just opened my eyes to the possibilities of creating a whole new type of product and a whole new type of category. And I started off on the product definition side, but it was quickly apparent that the team needed marketing help. And so, you know, I picked up some some tips and tricks on how to be a marketer along the way. And so part of my role grew into being, you know, essentially the CMO for the company as well. So I rebranded the company as Mojo Vision. A couple years in, I have been, you know, leading the charge on how to explain this new technology to the world while we're building it and to, uh, figure out how we invent a brand new category. I love it. Now, being on the front lines of innovation at Apple, Motorola with Google, and then being an enterprise, but all of those are, you know, they're whales, right? They're massive companies. Talk to me a little bit about going from those ecosystems into stealth startup, you know, probably a bunch of people in a room with a box of pizza, like, and okay, now we got to make this go. Was there anything like, Obviously, a lot of those learnings, you could come and apply systems thinking and how, you know, stuff that you would have learned to those companies. But was there any eye opening moments where you're like, oh, we're not in Kansas anymore. Like I'm not in in a big corporation anymore. Like things are moving way faster or anything like that. Any moments that stick out? I'd love to hear. Well, I can't tell you how many of those moments there were. There were, <laughs> it, it was a daily deluge of, of those types of moments from the fact that the support organizations that you normally have around you to do just the basic things from, you know, web design to messaging design to video production, all of those things that you find in a big company that there are pockets within your marketing communications teams that, that know how to do those things. They didn't exist. And I had to build all of those networks and, and all of those capabilities myself. Some of it we've built in-house, but most of it has been building out a network of really trusted vendors that I can depend on that, you know, I was telling one of them the other day, you're in the car with me and 
you know, if I'm veering off the side of the road, you need to be able to tell me that, you know, wake up, we got to get back on the road. And so I've got all these great partners with me that are on this journey and I wouldn't be able to do what I do without their help to make this happen. So having that support structure to build a marketing story and to communicate it is important, whether it's your Marcom agency or your PR agency or whatnot. But that was part of it. The other part of it is that you really do have a blank sheet of paper. There are no limits on what you can do and you need to throw away the preconceived notions that you have and the limitations you have when you join a large organization. You know, Apple has a certain way of doing things and that works for Apple and Motorola had a certain way of doing things and that worked for them um, in that context. Here we had to create those things. I didn't have any of those rules. And so it, it was very freeing, but it was also frightening at the same time to know that I could break a bunch of rules that were, you know, steadfast at these other places and see what happens, see what mistakes I was going to make and learn from those mistakes, which is a lot of fun. I love it. Yeah. Embracing the chaos a little bit when you're in that startup. It's kind of like when a university professor, when they would give you a paper and you could, they said, write on anything you want versus, hey, write on, you know, these three set topics. And that little fear of like, I can write on anything I want. I could do anything. I could go completely into left field. I'm with you on the startup side of things. And it's really cool to hear that. Now, as your role matured at Mojo and as you got kind of deeper into it and you're going, okay, we have this product. It's a game changer. I believe in it, but I need to communicate it out into the world. I guess, how are you approaching, you know, what category you fit in or creating a new category? How have you really leaned into kind of pinpoint the communication of the product to the world? Has there been a lot of back and forth? Has it always been, hey, we know exactly who we are and what we're doing? Walk me through that process just from an outward communication standpoint. Yeah. So, you know, first you have to look inward and we were in stealth. And so there wasn't, you know, this strong push that we had to have an outward presence right away. We needed to get far enough along in our development process that we had something to show. and We had something real and tangible that people could relate to. And so a big part of what I did early on was define the plan of here are the steps necessary from a product development perspective that we need to get through before I even want to you know, poke our heads up and tell people that we're working on this. So having those ideas in place of, well, it's got to be this type of demo. It's got to demonstrate these types of capabilities and having a clear vision of what that was going to be was part of it. And then the second part of it, of course, was coming up with, you know, who are we and what do we stand for? And when you're building something like a smart contact lens that many people assume is 20 years away and you're telling them it's going to be less than that, it's going to be a lot sooner than they think, you have to be thinking about what are people's reactions going to be? Are they going to have fearful reactions? Are they going to be you know, gleefully excited about it? Or is it somewhere in between? And how do you set yourself up for success in that situation where there's going to be a lot of different, really visceral reactions to what you're building? And so we had to think through all of those things while we were putting this together. I would say that one of the tools that I used or the book that I used that helped me with this is a book called Play Bigger. And your audience can check that out. But it's a great roadmap for how do you do category design and how do you think through what your category ought to be? Because when you're building something like a smart contact lens, it doesn't fit into any existing categories. It's not a smartphone. It's a wearable, but not the kind of wearable that people think of for health and fitness necessarily. It's a medical device, but it's not your typical medical device that you're buying and using just because you want it to do something from a medical perspective. So all of those things you know, together, you have to think of, well, it's actually, it's this new thing. It's this new category. And we need to be able to define ourselves in a new category, tell people what that category is, and then 
prove to the world that we are the leaders of that category and can you know, deliver on what we promise. So early on, we came up with this concept of invisible computing is our category. This idea that we can get the information we want when we want it and do it in a way that's natural, that's human, allows us to remain present in the world and interact with the people and the things in the world around us. And when the system is off, when the product is off, it disappears. It's invisible. And the idea that we can come in and out of getting the information that we want when we want it and do that in a completely natural way is what drives us. And so that's what invisible computing as a category for us really is all about, is to build these products that can enhance our lives by giving us the right information at the right time, but then disappear when we don't need them. I love it. Now, is there a challenge communicating or I guess, have you gone out and talked to people outside of tech forward markets? Because I know in the Bay Area, in Los Angeles, in New York, in Chicago, like I understand it. And, and you know, my abrasiveness to the tech is probably less than maybe in other parts or less tech forward markets. Is that something that goes into the communication strategy as we start to like think, okay, as this starts to expand, we have to really craft this narrative to make it approachable, you know, nationwide? Or is it more so, hey, we're going to lean into tech forward markets, early adopters who would be willing to do this. And then we know the world's going to kind of catch up as we create this category. How do you balance those two aspects? Yeah, that's a really good insight and, and a good question because, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot for the last five years of how do you bring something like this that can be, you know, a little too far ahead uh, for some people? And how do you build out a narrative and a path that gets you to that point where it does become accepted? I mean, we don't question the fact that we're all carrying smartphones and looking at them and walking around with them and accessing them you know, throughout the day. We don't question when people are talking to appliances in their house anymore. But when those things all first came out, it was like, what, what is that? And why do you have it? And I don't have it. And why are you talking to it? And that seems weird. And so you have to just know that that's the way these things work out. It goes faster now than it used to, but it, it still happens in that same sort of progression. And so early on, we knew that we wanted to build a product and a company that had a purpose. And it wasn't just about getting information on your eyes whenever you wanted it. It had to be useful and utilitarian benefit humanity in some way. And so one of the first use cases that we zeroed in on early with the company was to help people have low vision conditions. So say you have macular degeneration or glaucoma or retinitis pigmentosa. These are conditions where you're not blind, you can see the world, but contrast has been reduced or you need to zoom in on things to really see the world that you want to see, or your mobility has been reduced certain times of the day because you're having trouble walking in bright sunlight, for instance. And so we're thinking to ourselves, well, we're building this lens that has augmented reality that we can overlay on the real world. What if we can use it to highlight things and to reveal things that people with low vision conditions otherwise wouldn't be able to see? So we started working on how that could be incorporated in the early versions of the product. And we went to the FDA and we explained this to them and they loved that idea. And so they gave us, uh, we applied for it and were granted their breakthrough devices designation. And so that's become part of our identity is to build a product that is an assistive accessibility type product to start with. And when people hear about that, when general consumers hear about a smart contact lens that could help people and help a certain population of people where tech is useful, that's helpful that they see that and it helps with the brand positioning. It helps with 
understanding who this is for to begin with. And it becomes a lot less threatening in that situation. And so one of our early customers are going to be people with low vision. It doesn't mean that we're not going to lean into people in tech forward situations. And in fact, one of our big pushes right now, and you'll hear more about that over the next three to six months, is for athletics and for sports enthusiasts who want to get data during an activity, whether they're training or they are using the device for maybe it's competition, but basically when they're working out and they want to get better, imagine you're a runner and you've got all of your biometric stats in your eye and you don't have to be looking at your watch or you can be switching through your music or you're getting tips and coaching while you're running or it's helping you while you're a golfer. And just as you're teeing up, it's reminding you how you need to be standing, what your stance needs to be. That's something you can't do with a phone or a watch. So we're focusing on those during moments where it can really help you get better at the sport that you want to do. I mean, we think those folks are very tech forward and would be willing to pay for and adopt something like this. Totally. I'm patient zero with that stuff. I'm the guy who's like, take all my metrics. I want to see them. I want to <laughs> my run, you know, my, how's my heart rate throughout my run and everything, right? And checking, I'm frantically checking my iWatch. But I love that initial positioning as, hey, we're here to assist people. And then setting that as the backbone, right? And then everything else that comes is good and an add-on and can be maybe a bigger e-commerce or a bigger commerce, you know, side of the business, but ultimately having that backbone to fall on of saying like, this is going to enhance and enrich people's lives, right? And that's like a rallying cry that I think anybody in anywhere in the country can get behind to be like, oh, you know, I've been colorblind or I have poor vision and I can't see or driving at night or all of those things that glaucoma, like you're talking about, and being able to help reduce the impacts of that or help enhance the vision, I think is something that people will definitely get behind. And it's interesting from a product positioning standpoint and then being able to go tell that story yeah. out and then... One of the challenges that I have is, you know, I own both the product definition side of this and I own the product positioning and the company branding and, and that side of it. And I think that's somewhat unique, you know, short of being a CEO you know, for a company like ours. For us, being really focused on the low vision market is going to help us to refine what that product can be for consumers and give the market a chance to catch up to understand what this thing can do and be. And, you know, at the same time, there's going to be other companies that come out with glasses, uh, form factors for augmented reality. And that's all good. We like that idea that others are going to be building those form factors. And so people are going to get used to this sort of product idea being out in the market. Yeah, I love this, uh, having to designate almost the rising tide raising all ships, right? So you have to push this message that rises the tide and just gets people that, hey, like we are pro glasses and doing this and our, our tech, but then selling the vision of, you know, the future and where the world is going to go. But then two to your other side is like, but where do, can our product go realistically in the next five years? And then, okay, what's that message? And almost you can't segment them because they are connected, but it's like you almost those two trains of thoughts, right? One being the vision, the other being the pragmatism, which I hate using the word pragmatism when we start yeah. talking about innovative in, in tech. But I think that, yeah, weighing those two is tough. <laughs> it's very, very tough. It, it is. And, and I spend a lot of my time working on that positioning. Like, So if you think about what we're building, there are a lot of ethical and privacy implications to building smart contact lenses that people are wearing everywhere. And we talk about it being invisible computing, and that has you know aspects that might not sit well with people about you have information, I don't have information, I can't tell that you have information. And so we have to think through those use cases and we have to think through what's socially acceptable 
today, what's socially acceptable in the future, and make sure, again, that we don't get ahead of ourselves on what we try and do and what we try and give people, you know, the capability of doing. And so, you know, a lot of it has to come down to building out the roadmap for feature sets that have an ethical component to it and understanding, you know, where there's a line and that line is always moving and it always will be moving and having a process for evaluating where we build in capabilities over that timeline. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at things like, you know, the wealth gap, right? And then people when we're developing tech and we go, okay, are we perpetuating that or not? But then you look Mm -hmm. at things like smartphones, there's more smartphones on the planet than there are toothbrushes right now. So like smartphones became accessible at scale right? And aren't something that fuel that divide. So then it's like, okay, yeah, I like this, like thinking about, okay, where are we positioned? How do we position? How do we make ethical decisions? So I absolutely love that. Steve, before I let you go, if anybody wants to learn about Mojo Vision, where should they head? And then two, if they want to connect with you, what's the best place to do so? Well, if they want to find out about Mojo Vision, just come to our website, www.mojo.vision. And so there's all sorts of links to articles and and content that that we've created um, that explain what we do. Certainly, you can find us on social media as well. We're primarily on LinkedIn and Twitter. And so we have pretty active set of posting that we do there now that we're out of stealth. If you want to connect with me, best place is LinkedIn and you'll find me there and happy to connect in any type of capacity. You know, certainly I live in the augmented reality world today, but we also have a lot going on in sports and fitness, a lot certainly in medical ophthalmology, optometry. And so there's just a lot of places to find us. Amazing. Listeners, you heard it there. Go connect with Steve on LinkedIn. I'll make sure to put a link to both Mojo Vision his LinkedIn and to the book, which was Play Bigger, correct? Yeah, Play Bigger. So I will put that as well in the show notes. So go through, click that. Steve, thanks again for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jordan. All right, everybody. That's it for this episode. As always, I'm your host, Jordan Shelton, and I'll catch you next time.